0: Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast, another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you in your work for His Kingdom. All right. Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for coming. Um, it is not lost on me that we're day three. Um, And it's also not lost on me how very quickly the notebook, I do things analog at conferences like this so I can go back and look at them. I find that if I type my notes in my inability to organize, they disappear. But somehow if I have them in a notebook, I can go back and read them when I'm waiting for a plane or something like that. And I'm watching my, I was starting to get worried um, that my notebook wasn't gonna have enough pages and we're kind of at that space where You might feel like you're at capacity, and I just wanna, I don't take for granted your presence here, and I just wanna thank you for that. Um, I had a a dear indigenous friend of mine um, come to a presentation I made, and I asked him for some feedback afterwards, and he said to me, "Um, There's a right way to do introductions, Darren. (laughs) And so, of course, I, I looked at him and smiled. And he said, what you do doesn't define you, but where you've been and where your family has been influences who you are. So we want to start there. Um, I am a descendant of two Dutch families. My PACA would say, no, one Fries family and one Dutch family, for those that are into that. Both my parents immigrated to Canada when they were um, uh, five and eight years old. And so I am a first-generation Canadian. Um, I am the youngest son of Bill & Co. Speaksma. Um, And um, I'm married to a saint. Um, uh, We reside in the traditional we reside in the traditional territory of the Coast Salish people of British Columbia. And though that isn't my house, um, <laughs> that is a picture of a place uh, within half an hour of where we live. Um, and ultimately, the passion for which I'll speak with you today um, is because of these two young individuals uh, in my life. Um, I am a, a product of a school system that didn't work for me. Um, so some of my passion also comes from, from hurt. and I need to be careful with that. but one of the joys of being a parent is um, i my eldest, is headed to university, and he was the and some of you who are in my earlier session will have heard this story before, but I think it's worth sharing because it gives you a context. Um, for, for how I approach this talk. Um, he was the child who was reading before he entered kindergarten, which was terrifying for his kindergarten teacher, just for the record, um, and in second grade announced that he didn't go to school to learn. He went to school to be with his friends. He can learn whenever he wanted. And my wife looked at me across the dinner table and said, that's your fault. Uh, <laughs> And my daughter did not read till she was in fourth grade. And as a student heading into 11th grade, um, continues to struggle with what does it mean to be in an educational system that over relies on the ability for you as an individual to decipher text. Um, So that's the context. Um, So I have some learning targets uh, for today. I just want to encourage you to be open to new ideas. Um, I'd encourage you if we'll have time to reflect afterwards, um, we want to reflect on these targets. So um, I encourage you to take a picture of them, write them down. Um, I don't have a slide at the end, um, and I'm a bit of a talker, so I'm worried. I, I, I'm setting a bad example, but not leaving time for reflection at the end potentially, so I apologize. But those are our three targets. So I can be open to new ideas. I can enjoy learning stories which demonstrate how pedagogy is formational. And then in the end, near the end of my presentation, I can connect my identity as a teacher to innovation and faith formation. And that's probably the hardest target. This is the most challenging target of the three there. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll make a case there. Um, I am a disciple of three thinkers, Jamie Smith, David Smith, and and, uh, Parker Palmer. And you'll hear their threads through everything we're doing here. Uh, And this is Jamie Smith. Learning virtue, becoming virtuous, is more like practicing scales on the piano than learning music theory. I just want you to think just quickly about your practice, what you're having students do. Because it's not like scales are great fun. The goal is for your fingers to learn the scales so they play naturally. Learning isn't just for information acquisition. It's like inscribing something into the very fiber of your being. And we be- like, I believe, like, I believe Jamie Smith when he says, uh, you are what you love, in short. I did not, on a cold day when I was 13 years old on a dairy farm at 5 o'clock in the morning, when I had fallen trying to fix a water trough, ended up in a water trough. There was a whole bunch of different things. I walk into the dairy and the farmer gives me a thermos of coffee and says, drink some of this, that'll warm you up. On that day, I did not think to myself, yes, I want to be a coffee addict for the rest of my life. So I'm going to take this coffee. And yet over time, I have become an addict to coffee. It's actually one of the joys of my life is a good cup of coffee. And you guys have served me well here in Australia. I appreciate that. But some of that is what we're talking about when we talk about Christian education. The Christian deeper learning movement in North America has this definition. We want to be people of God's story, engaged in a real work that forms self and shapes the world. It's not a perfect definition, but it does give us some subtle nuances about the fact that we want to be more, and we want our students to be more than heads on sticks. Um, Ultimately, today, I'm hoping I'm making the case that to be a Christian educator means that we're in the business of how and why, of course. But the why is often established for us by the school we work in. As a classroom teacher, we need to be in the business of how, not the business of what. And too often, the first question we ask ourselves at the beginning of a year, at the beginning of a lesson, is what do they need to know? And that is the wrong question to ask as we start. It's an important question, but it should not be our starting question. I also wanna make sure you know that I'm talking about a piece of the puzzle. I'm not suggesting something that is the answer to all Christian education problems. I'm saying this is one piece we need to be sure we're thinking about. And if we combine this with good learning design and we combine this with robust, deeply thought out curriculum, then we're headed in the right direction. But this is by no means um, an answer to everything that ails us. Um, And I don't want to come across, I didn't want my passion to come across as as arrogance in that regard. Um, And ultimately, and this is a slide some of you will recognize, um, we're talking about a way of being. We're talking about Christ's way of being in the world. Because you can learn In a way that models Christ's way of being, or you learn in a way that does not model Christ's way of being. There's no neutral there. So, if we're not thinking about that, there's a pretty good chance we're actually, our way of being is actually actively sabotaging the desire of our heart as a Christian educator. So we want to think about what is Christ's way of being as he interacted with people, as he taught, as he responded to others, and to his father. And what launched this project initially was, we were working, I was working as an administrator in a school that was hiring amazing teachers who were trained in great educational programs and had no, no deep understanding of what it meant to teach Christianly. Wonderful Christian people, with great practice, but they were choosing practices because somewhere, some book told them it was a best practice. And they hadn't even thought about, how is this practice actually forming students? Because I've been told it's a best practice. And it was in that need that we began to think about, first of all, what does research say about good projects, uh, good professional development? It's got to be job embedded. It's got to have extended duration. People will say over 60 hours is the minimum that a person should be working on something before it actually changes who they are. And if you think about the majority of pro you do, most of it does not hit the 60 hour mark. So we launched into a 10 month project where teachers actually said we're going to spend a year not thinking about what we teach, we're going to spend a year digging into how we teach. And in small cohorts with Certain attributes that teachers hated. For example, they received a survey every Friday that asked them, how often did you do this, 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 and this that you committed to doing? Every day, a few times, not at all. Um, Teachers hated that survey. They knew it was important, but they hated it. Because it is hard, as a teacher, to check not at all. And we actually changed that language to not yet. Just made it a little bit more palatable. because we had teachers stopping to do the survey. But even in that, the practice of being reminded was formational. Even if every time they saw the survey they cursed my name, they were still thinking about their choices. And as we thought of Christ's way of being, we kind of developed five frames that I'm going to share with you. And then for the majority of the time, I'm just going to share stories of how that impacted um, classrooms. So we developed five um, sort of frames that teachers could make pedagogical choices with. The first was developing a heart for others. Because you can actually, as as you'll hear later, you can do spelling in a way that helps kids be individualistic, or you can do spelling that helps kids develop a heart for others. In both cases, spelling learning is happening, We looked at Christ's life and we also saw that he taught us how to foster genuine relationships. He showed and encouraged people to cultivate spiritual disciplines. Christ was about developing leadership capacity for a purpose beyond self. And he showed us what it meant to engage in a journey of faith and to see today as part of something larger and to always be called to something beyond the now but not yet. And it was these five areas that we um, developed as a group and then encouraged teachers to choose one of them. Well, actually, let me rephrase that. In our idealism, the first go-through... We were like, teachers will choose one of these a month, and we'll just roll, and we'll get through them all year, and it'll be awesome. And I had a young man, a friend of mine, come to me in October of the first year and tell me he had, I had ruined teaching for him. And I was like, talk to me about that. And he's like, I'm exhausted. I used to just do things. Now you're asking me to think about every th- decision I'm making. So what I'm talking about here is not for the faint of heart. You need to realize that. And I said it at the end of my last session. It's not not an individual project. So I'm aware that anytime you make a list, you're probably missing something. You could right away be thinking, what about this? What about that? Um, We're not talking about an exhaustive checklist. We're talking about an orientation to a different way of being. And we have found, in our experience, that these allow teachers to reorient um, their practice. And you ask, what does that look like? Um, a little bit of a backstory. One of the tough things of this, and I, I feel the need to, to speak this before I get into the show-and-tell story. Um, I mentioned this is hard work. Um, one of the things you need to realize is that um, when it comes to faith formation, um, that's actually the Holy Spirit's work. Um, we sow seeds that we will not reap. That's part of being a teacher. Um, and if you get to a point where I actually poke something, something that you love, like I bet you there's a lot of people in here that love show and tell. Um, including one of our speakers said he loves show and tell, I remember, and I right away got nervous. I think I broke into a a sweat in that moment. Um, um, Even if you're convicted, like you might just reject what I have to say if you love show and tell, or you might be convicted. And in both of those things, you have to remember that um, grace reigns. And if you didn't know something before, you shouldn't have guilt or shame about the fact that you were doing something that you actually didn't know any better about. Um, And it's important to realize that we're always, the rest of our life, as broken people, we're going to run into things that are like, I wish I knew that before. And when you're dealing with the lives of kids, there can be an extra weight of there. Let's live in grace here today. But we did have, I did have a teacher of 23 years teaching, um, popped into her classroom. And I'm like, Alana, how's it going? And she just burst into tears. And I was like, what's going on? And she's like, I'm done with show and tell. <laughs> Which was not kind of what you're, you know, you don't usually hear tears and show and tell at the same. But I said to her, um, and this is where the tears come, came from, I said to her, like, what's going on? And she says, for the last 23 years, show and tell has been forming my students to say their value comes from the cool remote control car they have, from the new Teddy, from the, and she just listed off. So for the last 23 years, I've been praying with kids and then inviting them into a practice that says your value comes from your material worth. And now those parents are having kids who are coming to my class. And when it comes to show and tell, they're thinking, what's the cool thing I can get my kid so that they can come show it off at school? So she said, I'm done with show and tell. I'm never doing show and tell again. And in that moment, we had the grace conversation. And then I said, that's good. Be done with show and tell. I'm not sure you need to be done with show and tell. But if that's where you're at, be done with show and tell. And it was four months later that I visited again, and she's like, show and tell's back. (laughs) And in that moment, she had talked about, um, what do we want to show? What do we want to tell? And it was through a year of looking on, what does it mean to develop a heart for others, that show and tell was family stories of how they had helped people with pictures and different things. And the parents were still involved. The kids are still standing up, practicing their public speaking. But in a small little tweak, you have drastically changed the formation of a a child. Another story, attendance. A simple practice. That's in some ways, you know, some people try to avoid attendance. In a primary classroom, if we're thinking about fostering genuine relationships, they had a student helper. Check, and this is actually uh, similar sort of, it's like, who's here, who's not? And then the student helper and their assistant, their job, for anybody who's not there, is to keep track of everything that's happening that day and create a package. So when that child comes the next day, there's a package of everything they missed prepared for them, not by the teacher, but by another colleague, another peer, who has thought of you and prepared this for you. And over time, suddenly you've got grade three kids writing them a little note, we missed you. A little sticky note on top, not because the teacher said write a note, but when you start cultivating a way of being, kids are being formed in a different way. They're part of a different story, a story that says school isn't actually just about me. Um, in a secondary classroom, it started with, instead of, George, yep, or someone else saying, yep, right, and dealing with that whole thing. Um, we've all, like, the laughter is we've all been there, right? Like we've, we've all marked yes for someone who wasn't actually there because one of their friends uh, did that to you. Um, kids walked in, and there was a prompt. And it started with silly stuff, like your favorite ice cream. And then eventually, it became things like, what did you learn from the person before you on the attendance list last class? And built into, again, attendance. It's simple. It happens in so many classes across the country. It can either form kids to say, you're a cog in a machine that is not about you. Or it can be a moment to connect and to foster a meaningful relationship. Does it take a little bit more time? Yes. But the research says that if you don't feel like you belong, it's much harder to learn. Assemblies. Chapel. You know, it's kind of one of those Oh, Mark, I almost didn't want to put this slide on here, because it's one of those things that's like, this makes us Christian. Yeah. Who's planning your assemblies? Right? If the adults in your school are planning your assemblies, you're actually teaching kids that worship is something that you come consume. Worship is something that only adults can plan, and you need to wait to be in charge of worship until you get yourself a degree. And what defines worship is what the adults say. One of my barometers in this is if I'm working harder than my students, um, I'm actually doing them a disservice. Because school is actually not about you guys or about me. So this is a tough thing, um, because middle school classes that have the opportunity to have a conversation about what worship is, um, that's risky business. Um, But what happened in one middle school um, was it became the mantra of the eighth grade was here are our goals for chapels and assemblies. And then the eighth graders in a sixth through eight middle school were tasked with if these are our goals, what's the best way to reach the goals? And one of the goals was community. So we had parents. So I'm at this, I'm at this assembly because they started calling it assembly instead of chapel, because parents got all worked up because. If there's not a band and singing, it's not chapel. What's happening? But if the goal is community, one of the reasons is developing community across grades, um, standing facing the front all singing, actually, though very valuable and wonderful, doesn't actually help meet that goal. And uh, eighth graders are pretty open about telling you that um, as they dream about different things. Does that mean there's, there's no room for collective worship in chapels and assemblies? No. I'm just saying kids need to get to the point where they say, we actually need to worship as well, and we need to do that collectively. But hopefully, if the adults are in the band, the drummer has got a second drum set with a student there. That might be a smaller drum kit, um, but that we're getting students uh, to be a part of that. Um, this seating arrangement, actually this seating arrangement, you know, um, is a problem in some ways. And why I chose to, to rely on story. Um, because every seating arrangement forms you in a specific way. And I am not naive to think that the wisdom in this small head... Is greater than the wisdom in the room, even though that's what the seating arrangement is teaching us today, and I'm va- like, that's that makes me uncomfortable, because the collective wisdom in this room so far surpasses anything I can come up with that this seating arrangement makes me makes me uncomfortable. But this seating arrangement, elbow partner, what if you're engaged, regardless of what you're learning, have a quick chat with your elbow partner about. Engage in the seating arrangement. How, what is that saying about learning, if you're involved in a seating arrangement like that? Just have a quick chat with the people around you. All right, if I can have you back. (laughs) This seating arrangement combined, and this is the assumption, this is the piece of the puzzle part, combined with meaningful work, says, in my mind, um, teams are better than individuals. Collaboration's important. We've got a task that we're better off accomplishing together. and obviously, if there's purpose, then you're, that's where you see formation connected to. Okay, A good seating arrangement, but not the perfect seating arrangement. Again, another quick conversation, because this is another great seating arrangement. What does this seating, how do, what does this seating, without actually saying anything, kids are being formed in a way by being engaged in a seating arrangement like that. Again, same album partner, have a quick conversation. How might they be formed? All right, if I can have you back. Thank you. Again, another great seating arrangement that when used with a protocol that makes sure that uh, people are sharing the air, um, it says that everyone has a voice. Think for just a second back to that chapel picture. How does your assembly or your chapel change when you do worship in the round, rather than in our third seating arrangement, because that seating arrangement forms the learner as well. And the irony is not lost on me that that's the seating arrangement we're sitting in today but do have that conversation with your elbow partner. What does that seating arrangement say about learning for students? How does that form students? Have that conversation with your elbow partner. All right, if I can have you back. (laughs) What I hope you're not hearing me say is that this third seating arrangement is bad. Okay? It is not inherently bad. There are times where it fits. Based on what your purpose is, Hopefully, in this conversation, though, one of the first things you're thinking about is you're planning your day, or you have a learning target. What's the best arrangement to help fulfill this learning target? Rather than, it's the first of the month, so we're going to change who we're sitting with. That's why I'm a huge fan of wheels, even though that means that the middle schoolers will probably, as soon as we go downstairs, be racing the chairs in the halls. <laughs> it's, worth, it's a trade-off that's worthwhile. But even uh, in those that were in a, the last session, you know, you get into, we are in one of the smaller rooms, and it's all rows, and I'm like, this seating arrangement doesn't work for me because these are our goals. Rearrange. And the group did it, and it was amazing. I didn't assign seating there. When you're assigning seating, is it management or is it learning? Why is it the teacher that is assigning the seating? Because a well-curated class that has talked about what it means to be in genuine relationship, third graders can wrestle with, oh, those people probably aren't going to work that well together right now. If they're scaffolded into that decision making, they can play a role there. They can own their space, but not own their space in a way that this is about me. I have a collect- If I'm in charge of making the seating arrangement for this week or this task, I have a responsibility not just to sit with my friend, but to think about everybody else. Before we go with that one, because that's, yeah, sorry. Let's, let's go back here one more time, sorry. Um, extended out of things like seating arrangements and structure, we did have one school that actually, um, for a time, tried instructional, day, instructional time in the morning, work time in the afternoon where kids could work wherever they wanted. Um, and I still actually love that idea. Teachers were still available, and kids could work one-on-one or in small groups, um, but they jumped too big at the beginning. Like, they just started after, after nine years of learning this way of doing school, suddenly saying, you have your afternoons to work on what you want as you want. Um, even though, but I love the idea, because what it's saying is you're responsible for your learning, and we're showing that to you even through the schedule we're giving you. Another one of those, you know, this is a, this is a different Holy Grail than chapel. Um, the letter grade, and you have to know that um, in the context of British Columbia, the first time we have to give students letter grades and percentages um, is at the end of 10th grade. So that's the context through which I'm entering this conversation. But you also have to know that I was the administrator who... Um, I'm a loophole guy. So because I don't want to get into the letter grades and percentages. They're just bad for learning. Full stop. We're not having that conversation today. Um, If you want to have that conversation at a later date, I'm happy to actually have it. It's an important conversation. Um, But they're actually, they don't promote learning. Because learning is about growth not achievement. Letter grades? Achievement. So in our context in BC where we had to give letter grades, when push came to shove and I poked and prodded the Ministry of Education, it turns out they need a letter grade at the end of the year. In our context, it was at that time. So what we did is we sent parents a letter at the end of the year, once school's already done, saying... This is what's going on in your child's permanent record. So we were still acknowledging the government mandated we need to give letter grades, but it was actually separate from the report card and communicating to parents. And we were able to get away with that. Um, the inspector of independent schools kind of looked at me and raised his eyebrows. But I was willing to do that because it's actually, as long as I'm compliant, it's not about me. It's about kids and learning. Um, And if we think about faith formation and engaging in a journey of faith, the only way you journey is by focusing on growth. If I stood at the door and gave you all a percent and a letter grade based on your engagement today and your thinking, you would be offended that I dared judge your development as an adult. And yet we accept it. And the problem with accepting any practice that focuses on achievement rather than growth, it does not honor the uniqueness of each individual, but it stops learning. And ultimately, we are all called to be drawn closer to Christ. And the only way we do that is actually through growth. Research says that as soon as you give a child a mark, They stop. So when we're talking about formation, we're talking about learning. That's going to have an impact. And I've been through the Gospels, maybe not as many times as I want to, but I'm still looking for that passage where Christ calls the disciples together and says, this is the important stuff. Next week, we're going to come together on the beach for breakfast. We're going to check who remembers how much. And the person that remembers the most, we're going to clap for, and you're going to get to stand beside me for the rest of the day. (laughs) And yet, we accept these practices. Feedback is different than achievement. Feedback forms. Achievement indicators frustrate. The only person that loves letter grades is the straight A students who like the the you know the dopamine rush or whatever. Um, in a school that's gone gradeless, it took about three months for people to stop talking about grades. As long as the communication, the feedback continues um, and is robust. Um, parents freaked out. The colleague who took my place at the previous school, about six months after me doing this job, said, I didn't realize how hard it is to stand in the gap and take the abuse so that the people behind you can do what's best for kids. And in that situation, I had parents, you are ruining my child. Because I'm not giving, you're not, the school's not given letter grades. Um, and it's not like real life. And I was like, when's the last time you're boss? <laughs> <laughs> right? And so much of school already isn't like real life. So why use that? Like, school's not real life. Okay. Where else in life do you block your time into 40-minute blocks based on an arbitrary taxonomy of information? Right? School's already not structured like real life, so why use that as a skirt to hide behind? It doesn't make any sense. That's a rant, though. Let's talk formation. Letter grades form kids in a certain way. And reducing the amount of numbers and letters you're giving to kids and increasing the amount of feedback is reiterating to them that learning is about growth rather than achievement. And you forget it's not just school. You're a Christian school. So if your Christian school is overemphasizing achievement, you're actually forming kids to teach them that being a Christian is about achievement. And that's actually a scary place to be. And some of it, our hands are tied. But what I find, and in our example, As a school, you do not need to give letter grades till 10th grade in BC. I wish I could tell you the story was, that's where grades start in most schools. But even with that freedom, there are a lot of schools that are like, I just don't want to deal with that. So we'll continue to live into that story instead. And it saddens me because we've actually been given the gift of freedom. And there's a lot of schools not taking it. What about the spelling test? I love this one. So my daughter, who didn't read till she was four, so this is a personal one. Um, And for those that are type A and keeping time, um, I was told I have till 1 o'clock. In a lot of classrooms, um, kids will do a test, a spelling test. They'll pass it to the person behind them. That person will mark it and then yell out to the teacher, this is how much so-and-so got. It happens more than you think, actually. Um, But not just spelling tests, any sort of test where we're publishing information. Like marks are actually about ranking. Right? The 100 point scale is ridiculous, first of all, but also about ranking. Averaging is also ridiculous and not about learning, it's about ranking and it's about achievement. Two taxi drivers. One taxi driver. Takes his test the first time, gets 67%. He needed 60 to pass. Hey, he's got his license. Second taxi driver gets 3% in the first test, 17% in the second test, 43% in the third test, and 98% finally in the fourth test gets his license. I'd actually want that guy, even though his average is way worse than the guy who got 67%. But again, when we engage in practices like that, that say how fast you do things is rewarded, I think back to Calvary. Right, The guy's hanging on the cross dying and calls out to Christ. And he says, today you see me in paradise. And yet we have systems that say the faster you learn, the better you are. We have a tendency to think rules. We need to make a rule about that. My first year, my my oldest, a little bit of anxiety, a bit of an introvert, the biggest thing he was concerned about in kindergarten was recess. Because what am I going to do at recess? And I'm like, you had a friend in third grade. And... I'm like, go find him. We'll get it set up. So at supper that night, I'm like, okay, how did recess go? Um, I wasn't allowed to play with so-and-so. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Okay, you were allowed to play with so-and-so. Next recess, play with so-and-so. Next dinner, we're not allowed to play. I, I, Dad, I'm not allowed to play with so-and-so. We're not allowed to play with third graders. You can imagine that staff meeting that next day, yes. where as the new principal, I'm like, Is it true that my kindergarten kid is not allowed to... Well, they get in fights. I'm like, how about we we teach them how to be? How about we give them norms? Anytime you find yourself compelled to go to rules, rules about restriction, teaching kids how to be, Then we're into a Christ way of being. So schools have a tendency to go, these are the rules. And I want to encourage you to, norms are better, but ultimately encouraging kids. What are we called to? Like I know we're not in the world, for the most part, we're not in the world of uniforms. So we're dealing with the whole dress code thing all the time. But people tell me that even if you have uniforms, you're still dealing with dress code all the time. So you can have rules about that, but that strikes me as a little bit old covenant. Or you can create a way of being at your school where you're calling them to something greater. This is why we talk about dress like this. And please, for the ladies, don't say, um, because the boys are going to look at you. Right? That's not good motivation, it's like this is an educational institution. This is, what, this, is what, this is the sort of clothes you wear when you're doing meaningful work and you've got to be focused on this. But we want to call them to that as opposed to, no, you're not allowed to wear that. Or if it is, no, you're not allowed to wear that, because I'm a dad of a 15-year-old girl and there are mornings where I'm like, no. Um, But then let's take the time to have a conversation about what are we actually calling to here? Because it's not like all rules are bad. Because rules give us structure that help us exist. But please resist the urge to take care of problems with rules. Because you're missing on an opportunity for formation again. So I've been going after you um, for a bit, knowing full well that we're just talking about a piece We're talking about a reorientation. We're talking about moving from a place of self-focus to a place of other-focused. And out of that place, we as teachers and as students can move forward another step in what is this beautiful genealogy of Christian education. Back to Jamie Smith. Similarly, if I'm gonna be a teacher of virtue, I need to be a virtuous teacher. If I hope to invite students into a formative education project, then I too need to relinquish any myth of independence, autonomy, and self-sufficiency and recognize that my own formation is never final. Virtue is not a one-time accomplishment. It requires a maintenance program. Moving from independence to interdependence. From personal to collaborative. Relational trust is built on movements of the human heart, such as empathy, commitment, compassion, patience, and the capacity to forgive. As I teach, I project the condition of my soul onto my students, my subject, and our way of being together. I'm so glad there's grace. And I'm so glad that this actually isn't about me. I'm the Holy Spirit's wingman. I'm not the one in the first, you know, I'm, I'm a Top Gun generation, so I'm imagining, you know, the two jets going beside each other. I'm not in that first jet. I'm not the one that has to engage. I'm just a wingman. I'm helping, supporting, orienting. Um, as you think about your role, um, as you balance the pressures of job, the expectations of administration, government, and self, I encourage you to think about what you want your students to say about you at your funeral. Might not be the most happy thing to think about. Some of us are a little closer to that than others, potentially. Um, But we acknowledge that there is a huge gap between belief and practice. And what we found in our cohorts as we worked on this is that you first, if you're going to help students develop a heart for others, teachers have to develop a heart for others. We can't assume that we're there as individuals. One of the most fascinating things about this project is in the exit interviews, we had married people come and say, my marriage is better because I'm doing this. Because once you start orienting your pedagogical practice around fostering genuine relationships, all of your practices, you see the world through a lens of fostering genuine relationships. But also know that you're on a journey that you can't do yourself. This is something that you have to do collective. If you're here with someone from your school, I want you to actually turn to them right now and make eye contact. I'm almost done. All right, I can going have you back. Why, just so you understand why I had you do what I do, there's a pretty good chance between today and the busyness of next week that you will have forgotten some of what we're talking about here. But when you walk into that hallway and you make eye contact with that person you just looked at, there will be a moment to remember. Because you have to remember, we believe in a triune God at the very fabric of our being is community and collaboration. So as you think about teaching in a way that develops leadership capacity, that fosters genuine relationships, that cultivates spiritual disciplines, or that sees life as a journey of faith, know that you don't do it on your own. Thank you.